what is the epicenter of what XIQ does is to help people communicate better. And we equip them with data points and with information that lets them be convincing in the arguments that they're presenting, whether that be a business case, whether that be an email that we are going to be writing, whether that's just the talking script that we need to have when we're communicating with something. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in-the-weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. Hello, leaders. Welcome back. This is Ledge. Today, I am excited to welcome Usman Sheikh to the show. Usman, I would love if you would give an introduction of yourself and your work. You are working on pretty much all the things that everyone is thinking about right now in the changing business landscape. So I don't know if you did that on purpose, but it sure was good time. Indeed. Hey, good morning and nice to meet you, David. My name is Usman Sheikh, as David just introduced me. I am the CEO of a company based out of Silicon Valley called XIQ. XIQ stands for Multiply Your Intelligence. And our focus is on delivering AI-based solutions for B2B sellers and marketers. And what we've developed is a one platform hosted in the cloud that completes the full end-to-end sales and marketing cycle. A couple of unique things, what David was referring to in terms of what makes us current, we use generative AI quite a lot in our platform. And one of the outputs of that generative AI is that we have tapped into behavioral science, specifically psychometrics, and we're able to predict the personality and the behavior and motivations, communication style or prospective bias. And we use this information to help marketers and sellers custom tailor their sales pitch and their outreach. So that's a little bit about what I do currently in my role at XIQ. Yeah, and you started it back in, if I think correctly, 2014. That was quite a bit prior to everyone now talking about AI. So a lot of my guests recently, I've I've had the same similar type of question. What's it like when the rest of the world catches up and starts talking about the same things as you nine years later? You know, actually, that is correct. And I remember you take me back to 2014. It was a garage at that time where I was sitting and had about three or four guys that we were tinkering around. We were highly motivated by some of the new design capabilities. If you recall back then, there was a solution on iPad called the Flipboard. And Flipboard was this really nice way of aggregating news. And that was my initial inspiration in terms of being able to present business data and information in a consumer-friendly manner. If you've dealt with B2B solutions. They're very boring. They're, I hate to classify this, but we used to use the term, they're like Russian television screens, right? They're <laughs> very monolithic and they don't move. So we wanted to add color. We wanted to add excitement. We wanted to bring the emotion of the news and emotion of business back into front play. And I had been with SAP prior to that, and I had seen some of the best sales guys at work, and they uniquely understood their prospects and the people they were selling to. They understood their industry, and they were able to connect all those dots. And so that was a great motivation. But, you know, it was the top sellers were only about 5% or less of the organization, of the sales organization. So 
I went about back in 2014 kind of studying what were some of the factors that made these guys top performers. And, you know, understanding the human psyche and the behavior of who they were selling to and being able to mold themselves into how to communicate to individuals at the other end was a huge strength of these individuals. Fast forward to now, we, in the process, we discovered AI, we discovered, uh, you know, behavioral science. We were aggregating news from all over the internet. We were parsing it to bring up all the special news around companies and individuals. And last November, as you say, the, the fuse was lit with chat GPT, right? And everything that we've been working on and People had doubts like, AI, is this going to take my job? Is this a threat? Is this an opportunity? All of that started getting validated. So it feels really good now. Fast forward to 2023, and generative AI is the buzzword. It's being discussed at the board levels of every reputable organization that's thinking about growth, is thinking about generative AI and how to use and tap into that power and capabilities that it brings along. And to be at the forefront of having brought this is extremely satisfying and validates what we've been thinking. It's very gratifying. So much of being a founder and startups is the vision and understanding and wanting to do something different. And none of us can escape. And I just wonder, like, how do you think about that? It's validating. Now, was it everything you wanted it to be until everybody started also having those conversations. What was that developing and almost educating people on a thing that maybe they didn't want to do as much as they want to do now? An interesting part of my background is that my education and my first 10 years of my career are in architecture. So I'm an architect. So what that means is that I take visions or I actually help create visions and then eventually it results in in a building or some kind of physical product. And there's a journey, and it's usually in architecture that's a fairly long journey because you don't see things start to materialize the moment you think about them, but it takes a little while. So my behavioral attitude, my mindset, my way of thinking, my way of looking was pretty programmed into there's a vision and we've got to get to the vision. So it's a matter of having some patience. And along the way, you have to take your client on that journey to help them understand, educate, see what world would look like over the horizon, so to speak, right? And so for me, I was trained to do that. And that was very helpful when it came into actually producing. I didn't really know what form AI would take. I knew that we would be using AI. I knew UB would be using this consumer-grade user experience that everybody is used to and was going to become much more prevalent. I knew that we were going to be on mobile devices. I knew that. But then bringing it all, and I knew, generally speaking, what we wanted to do. A lot of whiteboarding sessions, and in those whiteboarding sessions, I remember talking to a colleague, and he said, this is great, Usman, you want to bring news, you want to bring finances, you want to bring social media settings and and media posts, all of that together. But you're forgetting one thing. There's a human at the end of the day that's right at the center of this. And that kind of just lit up the, you know, that was the aha moment, so to speak, the Eureka moment. And like, where do we go to find and crack that behavioral, the human psyche, right? How do we help humans connect and communicate better with each other? You talked about it in your marketing materials that there's a lot of, there was a lot of talk even back then at the beginning about it. it's people are still doing this. Oh, we aggregate intent data. 
We pulled together all the news. We pulled all, all the finance. You just described that foundation. And I think what's interesting is then that the personalization and you started to see things come in around social selling and ABM, which you also represented. I saw in your infographic and then it's, hey, wait a second, psychology, individual, those buying motivations that are, are really at the one-to-one. And I could resonate to that as a B2B sales person. I need to know what motivates the one-to-one person that I'm that I'm talking to, like who who really is this? And and you often do wish you could run some kind of personality or motivation assessment. I think this the value prop resonates with me very much. I have been successful in B two B sales, and I know that innately those of us that have been able to do that and and sort of assess the personality in real time works, and so. You're able to now use technology to drive it to the rest of everybody else who needs to be successful in that space. Absolutely correct. At the end of the day, we don't sell to monolithic buildings. We sell to individuals. And they're people just like you and me, and they have emotions, they have feelings, and they have risk factors that come into account when they're taking big decisions. And so how do you overcome that? And Anybody can do that if they had the time to do it and they invested time and attention, underscore the word attention, into looking up the details to find out about those individuals. But let's face it, we've muddled up the B2B sales landscape. Today, an average B2B seller spends less than 28% of their time on sales-related activities. They're either in training, they're either updating their pipeline, they're either learning new products, They're trying to navigate this hybrid landscape that has been created for them. They're collecting data. They're trying to analyze data. They're spending a lot of time doing things that are not really related to selling, which is their profession. And if you break down sales, it goes back to the very basic. It's about people communicating with people, trying to convince them, trying to influence them, trying to show them the path. So that's where we kind of redrew the line, right? What do we need to do? What is the epicenter of what XIQ does is to help people communicate better. And we equip them with data points and with information that lets them be convincing in the arguments that they're presenting, whether that be a business case, whether that be an email that we are going to be writing, whether that's just you know, the speak, the talking script that we need to have when we're communicating with something. And another thing that's happened is that we're, the number of decision makers has grown exponentially as well. I remember, and maybe you remember as well, when we started, it was like three to four people that were involved in a decision-making cycle. Today, there's 12 to 16 people on average that are involved. And you think about it, right? There's the end users that you need to convince that, hey, this is my product. This can help generate value. Then you need to convince their management in terms of what is the business case, what what is the quantifiable impact that would have. Then you need to convince a person that's going to be the point of contact who's going to operate that system for you on your behalf. And you need to convince them this is not a net new headache, but this is going to actually add some benefit to their game as well. And then that's just on the end user side, the front end side of things. And then you have this chief financial officer and his team Hey, give me the business case. What is the justification? Then you have the legal team. Are we doing the right thing? Is data privacy and personal identity being is secure? Then you have the IT department. Then you have the procurement department. You start adding all these people and you have to convince all these 
that equation of having to just sell to one person, which is what happens in B2C, suddenly becomes very complex. But at the same time, it's about people. And so cracking that code about, and not all people are the same. We have different ways of understanding and different ways of communicating. So the 28% of the time that sellers are using to sell has now become even more fragmented because we are using that time to convince 16 people. And if we really have to spend attention to detail and invest time, we need to now learn about 16 or 20 people before we can get it right. And quite frankly, who has the time, right? So this is why it was a huge motivation for us to go back to the people equation, understand how people behave, and help those sellers do what they're good at doing, selling, by helping them understand how to communicate and get across to individuals better. Right. You crack the personality profile of someone who chooses to work in procurement. I think that by itself is a good <laughs> one, but that's a different topic. So yeah. That's a story for another. That's a different podcast altogether. <laughs> We're going to have to write yeah, a book about go. that one. Yeah, I agree. And What's interesting is that you were able to really bring a lot of ethereal concepts to work into a product, which I think, and you go back to that history you talked about of all the pieces that would be necessary to go between the vision of a a building that you would design to finally there's actually a physical building standing there and it, it looks like the picture that does strike me as like you, you seem to like to choose very complicated, multidimensional problems in your life, because that is not a short path. And you you talked about merging at least four different disciplines there into a product. And I'm interested how you must have had to assemble experts in many different fields to do that from an integrative standpoint. It's not easy to, for example, think about neuroscience and personality uh, assessments and motivations. And those are very human things. And relative to the idea of we need integrative data management and AI and big data and machine learning, whatever it was at the time, we keep changing the name. So how have you done that as a a leader in in a human integrator? Because that's talk about different personalities, right? Like a neuroscientist and a, and an AI scientist, data scientist, these are not similar humans. It is a challenging thing to take place. It's also been a journey. And again, as an architect, one of the key things that I am trained in is empathy, right? So that's one of the key things that you are taught. And I say that as a, there, it's not a natural skill necessary. It's something that you can learn. And it's a journey. So as one of the key things that we do is we listen a lot. We listen to what our clients are saying. And so as the journey progressed, our vision initially was the user experience, being able to consolidate information into one location and then present it 24-7 on your mobile device. That's where we started from. And then the people part started coming together and we started saying, okay, now let's go and study psychology. And a lot of this is, by the way, a lot of it is self-learning in that process as well. I wouldn't say I'm a PhD in any of these, but I'm definitely knowledgeable about a lot of different topics because you're forced to do the research that's necessary. I'm also the chief product officer of XIQ. And so to start conceiving this product and then start adding that neuroscience and the behavioral science aspects to this required us doing a lot of different, a lot of research in topics and subjects that we had no idea about. And then 
bringing in domain experts and then being able to communicate with them and then having them communicate with other people within the organization, which is what I guess you're referring to, like, how do those guys talk? And it takes time. It's not, it's, it's not frictionless. Let's put it this way. <laughs> Although I guess you could say that about any organization. I've never been in a frictionless one, but it takes a lot of development to have that happen from an organizational perspective. And they're often looking to you as the leader to break those log jams or come up with constructive ways to collaborate. And ultimately somebody needs to make the decision given all the information, some of which is contrary to the other, you're the boss, right? And you need to make that call and you need to make it in a way that has that empathy for all the ideas and saying, we are going to go with this one, but not the other one and yet still give honor to that. Does that align well with your leadership philosophy. I did also see that you're a, a driver. I believe it's on your LinkedIn profile. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it is. I am. So my personality, my the disc chart that I am in, I fall into the dominant as well as the conscientious. So I like to say, my, my, my crew says I have split personality, but I like to say that I'm the worst boss that you could have because on the one hand, I'm very detail-oriented. I'm very conscientious. On the other hand, I want to make sure it gets done as well. I'm the driver guy. It's a little bit, I think what motivates people is knowing where they can go with it, right? So the vision, like this has never been done before. We're boldly going where no man has gone before. I think at the end of the day, if you really have, my core thing is I want to be surrounding myself with innovators, with people who are forward thinking. And an innovator's the biggest light bulb that goes on in innovator is to be able to innovate and go where nobody has gone before, to do something that's unique. And so when you can show them that, look, this is this the kind of current stale state of sales, right? That's like a tongue twister, current stale state of sales. And that you can break away from that by using these modern techniques and tools that have existed. Behavioral science and this DISC methodology is almost 100 years old. It was not invented by us. We figured out how we can get you to predict the DISC insights by using algorithms and so on. But it has existed. But And it has been the testing part where people come in and they take a test and one week later, you get the results. We needed to change that. We can't do that in sales. I want to be able to press a button and I want to know that this person is a driver and therefore this is how I should speak with them and this is how I should engage with them. And so we were able to build the platform that would help us do that. But then when you show like this is the art of the possible and this is what happens. And one of the things that we do, David, is we bring our developers and our product team to our sales calls very often. And we go in front of people who have never seen XAQ and we show them XAQ. And it's the aha, the wow factor, the light bulbs going on, which is the biggest quote unquote driver for my team to follow the vision that we are creating. Like see how these people are reacting. These people are experts at selling. They've been selling for a long period of time. They've seen it all. They've used all the tools and look how they're responding to our vision our product, something that we are developing. And that starts to build the consensus amongst the team members that, yes, we're in the right direction, following the right vision. And that's super, super important to bring those guys. If people don't believe, they will never be able to build what you want them to build. So you've got to have 
one very, very important rule in the company, you've got to be a believer. So you've got to believe in that. Yeah, that's an interesting cultural thing because I can imagine some companies, if you tell an engineer to go on a, a sales call, they're just going to be like, oh my gosh, that's horrible. But you, you can build that eagerness because of that believer mindset. I, I have to imagine that you set that down early based on your own value set? At the end of the day, that engineer needs to know what am I doing? What am I digging this hole for? Or what am I building this wall for? Right? I need to, what am I coding for? What is the output? Is it really going to, and the moment they see the excitement, they see the opportunity that it's creating, the net new opportunities that this is creating, it's a different ball game. They come to work supercharged up. They have ideas to throw out. They start questioning you. And in that discussion, in that debate, lies the core spark of innovation. So it's very important. And we want, because we're doing something so new in a lot of ways, that we want that customer validation. We want that client input as well. And it happens, you know, and we want to cut the distance between what the client is saying and what the developer and the product manager is actually taking in. We want to cut that distance. We want to be as one in one as possible. And I am the shepherd or the champion or the chaperone for that particular, that's my goal number one, right? Yeah. And your own background then coming from architecture and, and product and, okay, I'm going to be a founder. You wanted to solve a problem in sales because you recognize an opportunity there. How have you evolved then into selling? You must do the practice of that thing to be passionate about it, but it really wasn't, you wouldn't start your career as a salesperson in B2B. So like, how did that all come together? Like you're the CEO, you must still be involved in some way or another, at least in the biggest deals. Oh, I'm involved in just about every deal. It's kind of scary that how many places I show up and when I sleep or don't sleep. But yeah, it, it, again, it's this product. We created it for a purpose. Everybody within the company has to use the product. We don't use... Yeah, that's how, it's the perfect thing to dog food. <laughs> we champagne, sure. but yeah, exactly. We drink, we drink our own <laughs> champagne, but yes, exactly correct. And we've got to do that. So again, because that's part of the believer mindset. If you don't know how your product works, what it does, you will never be able to sell it. Our marketers go through sales. If you haven't been able to sell XIQ, you cannot market XIQ. So sales is a very important part of what we do, and it has definitely improved my sales game a lot. We built it for the core motivation was take the wisdom of the top 5% of the sellers and be able to distill it so that the next 95% can benefit. It's kind of the democratization of that wisdom, opening it up, the Robin Hood story, if you may. And that really does charge me up at a personal level as well. So Again, if I'm going to create something for somebody, I need to taste it. I need to experience it. I need to know what it can do. And so I must say that my own sales game has benefited a lot from the product we've created. And uh, I learn a lot constantly every day. But again, it's just it's knowing that it's about people and you cannot be afraid of people. You've got to engage with people and people come in all sizes, forms, colors, <laughs> languages today without any instructions, right? Or till recently without any instructions. And so being able to uncover 
how you can engage is highly motivational and that's really the desire to talk to people the desire to engage people the desire to work with people is really my i would say a summary of my sales game today and how have things evolved through you know i startups and i think you're humble enough you'll probably tell the real story you know i gather already from talking to you that there are times that things don't go well on that visionary path there are mistakes there are learning opportunities and what was that in the nine years can you look at spots where you go wow we we got that wrong and then what was the learning from that so i think selecting the right kind of investor in your company is a very important aspect right having some alignment on the vision people when they put money into your company they expect things to go the way they want things to go and if you're a strong visionary and you want we could have just stopped at being able to predict the personality type the one point solution that we would have built and forgone the platform that allows us to generate content to help us write emails today we have this personalized ai assistant called gilroy that helps us comes into all facets we would have never done that so some of the mistakes were that we were desperate for money and we took whatever came our way without really thinking through it and having to pull out of situations such as that is quite ugly it's very unfortunate and it's very painful and so i think being able to have the guts i would say and the resilience up front to decide who is the right investor and maybe even having the luxury to do that right is super super important and those were some mistakes we made other than that we've been very focused on customers i still am very very adamant about trying to give good customer success building a customer success team that continues to be a little bit of an unknown for us we're still trying to find the right mix over there in the team to help us do that but yeah i would say that the big thing was around finding the right investors and when you do get the right investors it's also pretty joy joyful because they're on board with your vision and they want to go where you're going and they help you get there so it's a combination of both yeah absolutely uh, financing is not a small feat obviously the the cheapest financing you can ever get is revenue so i think that anybody who ever thinks about effectively bootstrapping and and actually getting customers to pay you that's the best money you can ever get. Uh, I'm a big fan of that, but some things just don't scale fast enough with just revenue. Yeah, revenue in for a product you've pretty much thought through and it's just been in your mind and now suddenly people are paying for it. That's really rewarding. Nothing like that. That's a big high. Yeah, a newer venture I'm I'm working on now we finally charged somebody a couple grand for something and that money showed up in the bank and you know that's where a million dollars starts that's where 10 million dollars starts it's it's just like when you walk into a bar and there's a bunch of dollar bills taped to the wall that's important and I, you know i encourage about you know that moment where we we charged somebody and it actually landed in the yeah, bank because <laughs> <laughs> it feels good every time the first time the zero zero to something <laughs> So take me back to okay you know it's the three or four guys in the garage and and those like I love those moments particularly I've been through this walked out of a job in some way or another like I SAP right bunch of years at SAP and I'm just I'm going to go start a thing and probably leaving a pretty good situation and then you're in a garage with a few other people and stuff needs to happen what was that like 
So for me, personally speaking, the big enterprise play is was a learning experience. So going to university, it was learning how to speak to people. And I will credit a lot of what XIQ is today from my learnings, having worked in the premier B2B sales, B2B software company, SAP. I was also very fortunate with SAP to be able to travel the world, pretty much all four, five continents and work literally be able to plug into an office and work in a different ethnicity, different language, different culture, a different way of working. So I learned a lot. And I was also privileged that in all, across all these different geographies and the world, I was um, very privileged to work with some of the best salespeople. So I, that's where my knowledge base in terms of what were some of the best practices came about. Moving to the garage was, you know, now let's bringing it all together. The good side of working in a big enterprise was all what I've just stated. The bad side was it can be also very political. And when you have success, when you achieve success, that that success in a big company has many fathers. So everybody claims that, hey, we were part of this journey and they were never there. And so it was time for me at, at a particular point in my life that I wanted to go out there and prove myself that I could do it on my own. So that was pretty unwavering determination to be and resilience in being able to go to do that. And, and sitting down with those four guys initially in the garage was extremely rewarding for me. I was highly motivated. I've always worked quite a lot. I've spent excessive amount of hours I, than I should be working. And, but this time it was all money in the bucket for myself, right? So it was doing something that was going to eventually pay off. And the big company experience had given me a lot of confidence in terms of what my decision making, was it the right one? Was it the wrong one? And now to come and do it for yourself was a lot of fun for me. And it continues to be because every day we hear something that, hey, I did not know your product could do this. Or customers coming in saying, every time we listen to you guys, or every time we use the product, we discover something new. That is just payback for all those dreadful hours that we may have spent in the cold. The garage was cold also, by the way. We needed space heating. <laughs> I've done the cold garage thing. You're absolutely right. Once in a while, single pane windows. Exactly. Yeah. You, know, you know it. <laughs> I have done the garage thing. Yeah. And I, I always like to go back to that you know, those early moments and think about what actual level of, of research and preparation and sort of the amount of time to develop even before that took place. Because when I evaluate the first time, I guess it, for me, it's back around 2006, seven, I'm going to, I'm going to leave a job and I'm going to go make a startup. And when I really think about it, my journey to that point started at lunch hours, you know, years before that, where I was, I, I, I have this itch. I, I think I want to solve these problems and it, doing the work, doing the thinking about how might we actually execute this in retrospect, I didn't know what I was talking about. And it was, now I look back, I, I wouldn't have bought that the benefits of having no hair and growing up. And so how much of that early stage was there before garage days and then after garage days before it became actual thing. That's a great point. So I would say almost 14 months to a year and a half before I left my company, I had started thinking the idea 
idea was there for quite some time. I knew I wanted to do something. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And then started coming together. I was asked to build a digital marketplace demand generation hub for SAP. And again, I was very fortunate that my the leaders in my company gave me the opportunity to do so. And they gave me a pretty open hand to go out and discover things. And this is back in 2008, I would say. 2008, yeah. We started doing, looking at how we could tap into social media, how we could bring video to online experiences so people could test out, quote unquote, test out enterprise class solutions what the value of testimonials was, how developer networks and those notes and those communications going by between developers could really add to help buyers make decisions. Also understanding way back then that buyers were even back then starting to spend more time away from sellers doing their own independent research. And so how could we channel that? And one very important thing that came into that kind of was starting to become obvious was that you had to gain mind share before the decision making or the decision to acquire something started. And that's a very important thing that most people in B2B sales don't realize today, that where is the idea being born? You've got to be there today. You cannot be at the point where the idea is coming to fruition. Hey, I want to buy XYZ. That's too late in the equation. You've got to be like, Let me help you formulate the idea. So about 14 months, 15 months when I was building this, it started coming together. But again, I was in the confines of a big company working to their rules, their requirements, their brand guidelines, all the stuff that you have to work, their politics, um, their organizational structures. So I was able to get away with doing a lot of things, but there was a lot of pent up desire and the vision started formulating, hey, we could do this. What if this happened? And so then from what we did with this digital marketplace came the idea of, well, how about if we were to assemble these pieces together, what would that be able to do? And that's really, that started about 14 months ago. I started dipping my toe. I started doing a lot of online research, like how would we, is it even legal to aggregate this kind of data? How would we aggregate it? Where would we get it? What is giving attributions all about? So there was a lot of work that happened while I was in my previous job, but it was all, I think, eventually culminating in me stepping out and doing my thing. That's fascinating, that process you just described, right? I mean, you're just talking about the probably some of the first research into demand gen, and that's a thing now. And everybody, oh, yeah, only 3% of the buyers ever want to buy something right now. What are we doing with the 97% for a year and a half prior to them even thinking about it? That's the gospel of demand gen now. (laughs) And you're talking about way back when having just the initial research to do that. That's fascinating. And you know, David, how many companies still don't do that? They might talk to him, but I would venture to say that a vast majority of companies do not invest in, in building their brand reputation. And when I say their brand reputation, it's not just the company's brand reputation. It's the individual, the seller's brand reputation. I have to have a reputation which says, this guy knows something about AI and sales and marketing and B2B and account-based selling and marketing. I've got to have, people need to be able to come to me to say, okay, we trust you. We recognize that you've invested time. You paid your 
your dues in this space. Yeah, that's very important. Shortcuts don't work. And you've got to be really able to come in and <laughs> pay your dues. And investing, and companies that do invest in that are the ones that have longevity, are the ones that succeed, are always ahead of the curve as well. There are a lot of demand gen consultants making a lot of money proving your point that people still don't do this 10 years later. So <laughs> you are definitely ahead of the curve on that. Before I before we run out of time, I just want to know from you, I like to ask all my guests, is your unique perspective as a, a leader in B2B with your experience and all the things you've gone through and what's in the marketplace now, look forward a couple years and what must be on the radar for everybody who's listening, regardless of their role. Yeah. So I would say something that is fairly current, but I think it's very important because AI is something that's getting popular, but there's a lot of trepidation. There's a lot of hesitation towards it as well. And there's another thing that's happening with AI is a lot of people are using this new technology to do things and conduct processes that were old processes. And what we need to start thinking about is that AI is a dimensional change. It's a new caliber of measurement. And therefore, we need to reinvent the process. Now, the art of selling will always be the same. It's going to be the people-to-people -people interaction. But it's going to be degrees of personalization. It's going to be the agility with which we respond. It's going to be the visibility into our prospects and into our target audiences. It's the definition of that ideal customer profile that will continuously improve. And AI can help us a lot. So I would say that future thinking, AI should be definitely a tool set. And I really classify this as a tool set. I don't classify it as anything more than that, right? It has to fit the imagination and the vision has to be created at the human level. Now, let me give you a quick little example. I'm sorry if I take a little bit longer. My product developments, my product innovation lifecycle, just to write a spec used to be, let's say, six to eight months for a particular thing that we were going to introduce. Today, with generative AI, I have really done it in an hour and a half, believe it or not. Okay. Maybe by the time we cleaned it up, it was two days. But it's gone from that six to eight week cycle to an hour and a half. And so the, the timeline and the agility with which what we can do now, if I can do things where I can introduce new products, which are defined, and I will say this also much better defined, much better qualified than what it would have taken a human to do in eight weeks. If I can do that, my rate of innovation accelerates a lot. Right When my rate of acceleration, it, it's just a new dimension that I bring to the market. Today, our customers should not, are not, and should not be evaluating on what we have in the bucket today, but should be looking at the velocity with which we can introduce innovation to the market. I think that's a big evaluation criteria that companies need to think about. Like They think about, oh, do, are they sustainable? Are they large? Today, small companies like ours can behave bigger uh, and better than large companies because we have the tools to do that. And that's really how these AI-based tools should be utilized is to help us leapfrog, is to help us look much more abundant than we are uh, in reality. 
And, and there's no reason why we should fall short of that. The decision that there's a famous saying, you know, nobody ever got fired for selecting IBM. I would put a question mark at the end of that. No disrespect to IBM at all, by the way. So I think that moving forward, we need to be looking at AI as a big game changer, something that should be in the tool set. Those people that use AI will advance. Those people that don't will unfortunately become obsolete. Yeah, you're the first guest that has said that, thinking about it from, hey, it's like people using these tools that go, oh, well, cool, I can write more emails or I can write more content and it does a lot of things for me. But I completely agree with you. It's like abstract that and get to the meta work. And I would encourage people, and I have done this myself, anything you think I need to analyze or I need to assimilate or I need to come up with uh, an integrative thinking result, this thing can do it a million times faster than you or anybody with a job called analyst. And I would encourage everybody to think of it that way because, the, and we saw this with process automation, even in the, in the 90s, right? Like we could essentially, we can make the dumb thing that we were doing before much faster what can we train? We now have a tool that can teach us to do things better, not just faster because we were stuck that way before. And I, I think that lesson alone is worth the listen. I hope everybody stuck around to the end. Usman, this was brilliant. Thank you so much for the insights. Really great conversation. You're obviously a tremendous leader for yourself and your companies. And I love the empathy and I just really look forward to seeing all the next innovative things you come up with. Anybody that's resonating and wants to check you out online or reach out to you, how, what's the best channels to do that? So LinkedIn, I'm always on LinkedIn, quite active on LinkedIn. So that's U-S-M-A-N, Usman, Sheikh, S-H-E-I-K-H. You can look me up, xiqinc.com is our website. And recently also on Instagram, TikTok, <laughs> all this X all the social media LinkedIn would be probably the best way to get through to me fantastic thank you so much for coming out and sharing really thank you so much it. for having me David appreciate it really enjoyed the conversation thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed this episode of the leaders of b2b podcast and as always you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leaders of b2b.com if you enjoyed the show please give us a five-star rating this episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com.